0: God in unexpected places. This is
1: the Messy Spirituality podcast. Here's Jason Elam. Keith Giles is a former pastor who abandoned the pulpit to follow Jesus. He is one of the three co-hosts of the Heretics Happy Hour podcast, a blogger with Pathos, and the author of several important books such as Jesus Untangled, Jesus Unbound, and the forthcoming Jesus Unveiled, all published by Guire. Keith, brother, welcome to the Messy Spirituality Podcast.
0: Wow, Jason, I am so honored, so blessed to be here talking to my friend. Um, I am excited. So, yeah, thanks thanks for having me on.
1: Good. Me too. We really appreciate your time today. Uh, Tell us a little about your background for those who may not be as familiar with you as as I am. Who is Keith Giles?
0: Uh, He's just some guy who was born in Tennessee, grew up in Texas, moved to California, started a family, and now lives in Idaho. Uh, That's the short version. Um, but I'm, yeah, I was licensed and ordained when I was, um, golly still in college. And then, um, my wife and I moved to California and I, over the years I've been involved in different, different churches in different levels, um, different roles. And then we, um, we helped to plant a vineyard church in, um, Southern California and did that. That was an amazing experience. And right after that, we felt God calling us to start a church. And so we were, like, excited. Okay, wow, that'd be cool. And then God said to start a church to give away everything to the poor in the community, which was amazing. And um, wow. the only way to do that was to start a house church and meet in homes, and I got a job, just a regular job. And uh, we did that for 11 years. That was fantastic. Just it was an amazing experience. And um, yeah, I've been blogging and writing for pretty much the whole time. And um, yeah, so I published a bunch of books and then just – Published Jesus Untangled, I guess, about a little over two years ago.
1: Now, I've heard you describe yourself in other interviews as a former Rush Limbaugh listening NRA member.
0: Uh, What
1: was the catalyst that took you (laughs) from that to who you are today?
0: Wow. Yeah, you have to bring that up. So, yeah, I did. Well, and and I say that, you know, I I share that with everybody because— of what I write about in Jesus Untangled, I want people to know I'm not somebody on the outside critiquing um, somebody who's politically entangled because I, it really is, I was someone politically entangled. And I really was, like you said, I was, this is during the time I grew up in Texas and I was not, not just a Republican. I was listened to Rush Limbaugh, I was a member of the NRA, owned a bunch of guns. I mean, you name it. And um, so I guess what what kind of brought me out of that um, I think that there's one catalyst moment in my life that I can always point back to of sort of like, what was the beginning of, we kind of call it deconstruction, but it was the beginning of my, my deconstruction and reconstruction of my faith. I was, I was interviewing this guy for, uh, for Relevant Magazine, and I, I asked him what was wrong with the church in America, and he said that the church in America had a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. And I said, well, okay, well, could you elaborate? And he said, well, the gospel isn't. About saying a prayer so you go to heaven when you die. And I, again, I was a licensed entertaining pastor and had served in many churches over the years and I didn't know what he was talking about because I thought that was the gospel.
1: Right.
0: And then he explained to me, well, you know, the gospel is what Jesus says it is. And it's found in the gospels, you know, those books in the, in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you go and read the gospels and then out of the mouth of Jesus, he says that the good news, which is what gospel means, is that the kingdom of God is open and and available and it's within you and it's close enough to touch and you can enter and experience, well, what it's going to be like to live in the presence of God and have a connection with God right now. You don't have to wait until five minutes after you're dead to start experiencing what we would call heaven. Right. And, um, that just, that was an amazing, that was like a nuclear bomb going off in my spiritual life and in my mind and everything. And, uh, really forced me to rethink everything, because at the core, that understanding of the gospel begins with um, Jesus' invitation to follow me. And how do I do that? Well, I die to myself, and I take up my cross daily. Okay, what does that look like? Well, I have to put his words into practice. Okay, well, what were those words, right? So you suddenly become a student and an apprentice of Jesus. And by doing that, and the process of doing that is sort of how I started recognizing my own entanglement with politics and the fact that I couldn't have two loyalties. I had pledged my allegiance to Christ. I was a member of his kingdom. And then that meant I shouldn't be, at least my conviction was, that I shouldn't have loyalty and conviction, loyalty and um, um, loyalty to another kingdom, right? To a kingdom of this world.
1: Right. So if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not type of thing.
0: Well, yeah. And then I sort of recognized Then I started reading early church fathers and uh, church history uh, pre-Constantine and realized that is exactly what the church did. That is the that is exactly uh, the position the church had. And 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 as you said, it's how, you know, millions of Christians went to their deaths uh, because they refused to say that Caesar was Lord. They said, no, we have only one Lord, only one king. And he is Christ. And that's why they were tortured and martyred and, you know, all that. And, and so realizing that, I, I recognized that, well, this is a big part of what it means to follow Christ. Uh, I really do have a loyalty to him that shouldn't be compromised by anything else.
1: Keith, your book, Jesus Untangled, which is incredible, by the way, is, seems to be about the danger of God's people giving that allegiance to a political party or an agenda or a nation how did the church in America get so compromised on this issue?
0: Well, uh, it's it's a many, there are many folds, <clears throat> many um, layers to that, to answer that question. I think, I think you would initially, like Christianity in general, got um, entangled with politics under, under Constantine. When Constantine showed up, um, he introduced what I call sort of two major uh, if you want to call them heresies or two major errors in the church, one was hierarchy, because mm-hmm. Jesus had said to his disciples and to the church, um, you know, he pointed to the religious authority, he pointed to the to the secular authorities, and he said both of these groups lorded over people, but not so with you. You are all brothers, and we have you only have one head, only one master, and that's Christ. And so. Constantine shifted that, and the church suddenly um, it started adopting hierarchy within, uh, or it, it promoted hierarchy within the church in, a, in an aggressive way. And then the other thing that Constantine brought in, unfortunately, was an entanglement of the church with the empire, and uh, that's that's really where it began for Christianity. But then, in uh, in America specifically, um, it started coming in really well, from, from the beginning, even before. America was a nation. I didn't get to talk about this in depth in this book. Uh, maybe I'm going to write a follow up to Jesus Untangled very soon, um, maybe next year. And then, um, but what we see is that when the colonies were forming, many of those colonies were very uh, like they were Anglican colonies. There were Puritan colonies. There were they were religious colonies. And then when they set up their own little governments for their for their colony, uh, quite often it was a um, a theocracy. And there were a few people like Roger Williams is someone, if you want to, if anyone wants to read up on Roger Williams, it's very fascinating because he was probably one of the first people to push back against this idea that there should be a theocracy, that, that the governments, uh, that they formed in the new land should be Christian and should impose Christian values upon everybody in the community. Um, and so ironically, it's the writings of Roger Williams and the influence of Roger Williams that influences, the writers of the Constitution, and it's, it's the reason why, even though many of them may have been Christians, they, they very on purpose did not form uh, a government for, for this new nation they were forming. Uh, they did not form a Christian nation. They did not form a theocracy. They did that on purpose. They avoided that um, because they had experienced it in England, because they had seen it the, the dangers of it in the colonies. And they said, no, the the nation we're starting is not going to be like that. But unfortunately, uh, we as a humanity tend towards that. And so it's just been creeping in ever since. And in the book I talk about – sorry, this is a long answer. Uh, No, that's good. In the book I I, I identify those some key areas in history, in in American history, where uh, it wasn't accidental. So in the 50s, there was a very specific, intentional – I call it a conspiracy. It kind of was. Between um, corporations and some leaders in the Christian Church, to um, introduce some language in the church, to introduce some ideas in the church that would uh, that would entangle conservative Christians with the with politics and political um, political aspirations and control, and uh, unfortunately, it seems to have worked. Um, during that time is when we had things added to our, um, you know, like in God we trust was added to our coins and um, one nation under God was added to the pledge of allegiance and all these kind of things. And again, this was part of this creeping in of Christianity with uh, entanglement with politics. And then we saw it again, there was another wave again, uh, the moral majority, the rise of the moral majority uh, when Ronald Reagan was president and running for president and a very intentional, again, uh, entanglement of with very specific Christian leaders, um, Falwell and Francis Schaefer and guys like that. And in the book, I talk about this, how um, many of those people who were at the leadership levels uh, of the moral majority, like Cal Thomas and Ed Dobson, after it was all over, they kind of like did an assessment. In fact, they wrote a book together called Blinded by Mike, which is also an excellent book. And they, mm-hmm. they just <clears throat> expose all their mistakes, confess all their all their failures, and they say basically that entire thing was they just got played like a violin. They got promised a bunch of things that, that no one delivered on, and the only thing that they accomplished was making sure that Ronald Reagan was elected to two terms. Um, and so anyway, the, the, the end result was that um, American Christians were manipulated for political gain. I, I use the phrase in the book, and this is really, I think, what the book is. To summarize the book, this is kind of what the book exposes. Mixing faith and politics is like mixing horse manure and ice cream. And it doesn't really affect the horse manure, but it really screws up the ice cream. And in this right. case, ice cream would be the, the, the Christian church and the, and, the, and the gospel of the kingdom. Whenever we mix these two things, you know, well, what do you get when you mix faith and politics? Well, you get politics and, and faith gets lost. And that's unfortunately what's happened, and we haven't seemed to have learned from these mistakes over the years. In fact, uh, unfortunately, as you know, where we are today, uh, we're more entangled than ever, and it seems to be even more toxic than I could have ever imagined when I wrote the book. Yes.
1: Uh, Many of us, myself included, through that process of deconstruction you referenced earlier— Uh, came to a realization the Republican Party didn't reflect the values of Jesus when it comes to issues like war, capital punishment, and taking care of our neighbors in need. A common temptation seems to be to leave the GOP for the Democratic Party or Libertarian Party or the Green Party. Is that the solution? Are we just waking up to the fact that we've been used and seduced and then leaving for another party to do it better?
0: Yeah. You know, they said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. And, um, I understand that temptation. In fact, I did that exact thing. Um, cause right about the time I was starting to recognize, uh, that the Republican party was, you know, sort of manipulating me and lying to me and, and, uh, kind of using me. Um, I did, I made it for a brief time. I made a swing to the left. I voted for Obama. I thought the answer was, well, if it's really bad over here in the Republican party and it doesn't reflect as you said Christian values I'll just swing over here to the to the Democratic Party well what I quickly quickly figured out was it was exactly the same they were just changing the names they they had a different uh, I talk about in the book the shiny red button for the Republicans the shiny red button is abortion and they have no intention of ever changing that because it's too good of a of a tool for getting people elected all you've got to do is say that you're pro-life and you're anti-abortion and everyone jumps up and down, gets excited and and votes you into office. And then you have to make sure you never do anything to take that away because as soon as you do, you've lost all your power and leverage. And well, what I discovered was the democratic party had their own shiny red buttons like poverty and things like that. And they, they also made sure they never really did anything to actually solve those problems for the same reason. Um, Politics is politics and the political process whatever party you're in, it doesn't really matter. Um, it, Christians are, they're being manipulated. They're they are a voting block. And by the way, it's not just with Christians. They figure out how to do this with minorities and uh, other groups of people. Uh, they're very good. Politicians are very good at knowing how to manipulate us to get what they want out of us, but they never actually pay off or give us what we want. Um, so no, it's not, the answer is not to just join another political party because Again, the entire political process is broken. I talk about this in the book as well. Um, you know, there was a study done it was a Harvard study that was done over like a 20-year period. And essentially what they determined was that the public opinion about something, whether or not the, the American public wanted something to happen, if 100% of them wanted it to happen, um, there was a 30% chance that that, that thing would happen. If none of them wanted it to happen, there was still a 30% chance that that thing would happen. So in other words, uh, the will of the people had absolutely no impact whatsoever in whether or not that that law would, would uh, be passed or whether that, whether that policy would be enacted. Um, so the realization that I came to was that um, we no longer have a government by the people, for the people and of the people. I honestly don't know if we ever really did. Um, and and that's fine if you think we did, but I would say at this point, we don't. Uh, and so uh, that's at the point that I just ab- abandoned trying to get anything accomplished, any good thing accomplished through political means. I just don't think that's, I mean, I, I, I think it's easily demonstrated that that really isn't the way to make a difference in the world that we live in and to certainly for a Christian, it's not the way we're going to advance the kingdom.
1: I think the thing that struck me from the gospels on this subject is there was a time when the crowd literally tried to make Jesus King by force and he didn't let that happen. If that was the path to transformation of the world, why wouldn't he have just let them do it? (laughs) Why wouldn't he have just been their King and enacted all the right policies? That's not how God chooses to do his work. And I think that's a really hard thing for political junkies like me to remember.
0: Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. And you're right. When you read the gospels, you see Jesus avoiding. In fact, that was one of the temptations, right? In the right. one of his first temptations, it, it involved basically being given political power and control um, of the world. And and he 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 avoided that. And I think we should too. And you're right. They wanted to make him king by force. And he was like, Nope, that's not what I'm here to do. Um and, you know, and again, we just see the evidence of it throughout church history. Um, you know, Paul and the apostles never, never seek any political influence or power. And here's what's, here's what's key about that, too. When you, when, when you study early church history, that's one of the things you'll notice. Um, even, we even see this in the Gospels. That there were people, there were members of Caesar's household who were loyal to Christ, who were, who were either curious about or funding Christ's ministry or interested in what Jesus was about. Um, and And that, by the way, you see all through early church history is that there were people in places of political power who either were Christians or were sympathetic to Christianity. So why didn't they use that influence? Why didn't the apostles and the early church fathers, why didn't they say, hey, buddy, toss us a bone here? Why don't you pass a law? Why don't you give us some, give Christians some, you know, favor in the government? That was never a temptation. In fact, they did the opposite. They told those people, you need to renounce your political power—you've got to step out of that. You've got to pledge allegiance to Christ as your king and not to Caesar. Um, so, yeah, and even when they had it within their grasp, they didn't—they uh, didn't again to kind of paraphrase Philippians—they didn't consider that power something to be grasped. But they they emptied themselves of that. They became servants to to one another and to the culture around them, and that's the way they had a transformational impact on people around them by. Really living out the gospel of Christ.
1: One of the subjects that you spend considerable time on in your work is nationalism. What is nationalism? How is it different from patriotism? And why do you think it's so dangerous?
0: That's a good question, Jason. I think, uh, to be honest, um, I'm sure there is a difference between nationalism and patriotism, but I think the I think that line is so thin and so fine. Um, let's put it this way. I think the average Christian can't see the line between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Christ. And that's a much bigger line. So if, uh, if it's difficult for us to see the line between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of America, uh, the American empire, then I, I I think most of us are, have an almost impossible time seeing a line between patriotism and nationalism. I mean, yeah, I think there's a textbook answer that patriotism is, um, you know, you love your country and, uh, you think your country is great. And nationalism is basically my country right or wrong. And, um, you know, we want to win at the expense of everybody else. And we're going to exploit other nations and that kind of a thing. Um, but, but again, I think, I think for a Christian patriotism is, again, it's so close to nationalism. Like, uh, it's still sort of the idea that, well, my country is special. Uh, my country is blessed. Um, and again, I talk about this in the book about how, you know, um, well, first of all, there's, there's an amazing verse in Isaiah. I can't remember the, the the address actually, but there's a verse, I believe it's in Isaiah that says that all the nations of the world are as nothing to God. Like he just, it doesn't even, it's ridiculous to him. He doesn't even consider the nations of the world. It's like, that's not even, you know, their their ability, their power, their even their existence to him is like. It's nothing. But I talk about it in the book about how, like, if someone comes to Christ in China or Korea or anywhere, Africa, anywhere, you know, do do they immediately become a Republican or an American or a Democrat? Uh I mean, obviously not, right? Right. And the reason why I I try to ask Christians to imagine that and and I ask them that specific question is I want them to understand – that it's possible to be a follower of Christ, a sincere follower of Jesus, and not be a Republican or a capitalist or or a Democrat or or a Libertarian or any of that. Like, and not only by the way, is it possible? The majority of Christians on this planet are not Americans, which means they're the, the most of the Christians on this planet right now are not uh, Republican or capitalist or Democrat or anything like that. And so we have to. I, I again, it's just my conviction. I really think. We, as followers of Christ, need to just completely step away from loyalty to our nation. Like Now, it doesn't mean we should not care. I'm not saying we don't care about it. We certainly pray for our leaders. We pray for our nation. Uh, we, we care about our the neighbors who live next door to us and the people we come in contact with. We certainly have love and compassion for people. But uh, I think we need to step away from this national identity or even— uh, Frankly, to sort of rah-rah cheer on our government or our, our nation, uh,
1: it feels like there's uh, there's a real tension between the whole. I hate to even use this phrase, "Make America Great Again." Yeah, uh, nationalism, a- and it's not one party or the other because I had issues with the Democrats when they were in office as well. But no. there is a there's definite tension between the idea, the concept of "Make America Great Again." And defending our country and and locking, you know, putting up the wall and locking people out. And, and the Jesus who says to welcome the stranger or to care for the poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those two things seem to be in such contrast that it feels like you can't live in both kingdoms. But I know that myself personally, I've tried to do that my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I think that the only way that worked was for me to buy into a doctrine that says, well, America is the new Israel. Mm-hmm. And we are the exception. And so therefore, nothing we do is wrong and God will always bless us because, you know, we we sing God bless America. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, you're right about all of that, man. Um, yeah, we certainly have adopted that idea. I, I don't think um, many of us are willing to to kind of like put that in writing or put that on a flag or a T-shirt or something. But I, I think you're right at that. You know, deep down inside, a lot of Christians who are entangled this way, they kind of do feel like America is the next Israel, right? Like we're like we are again. We're a Christian nation. We're God's chosen people, and all that kind of a stuff. And so we we like to adopt that identity that we're the new Israel. But you know, where in the world do we see any evidence of that? Like compare, uh, you know, is there any? Uh, did, did God sort of you know um, speak to? Uh, the framers of the Constitution. By the way, I've met Christians who do think that they do. They would call the de- the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution inspired documents. Uh, wow. they, 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 they treat it as if it is sort of this uh, inspired thing. But but again, we don't see any evidence of this. There are no miracles associated. You know, there were no prophets at the time. Uh, you know, we're we're not Israel. And in fact, I would argue, and I I'll talk about this in the book as well. Like, I don't even think we've ever been a Christian nation at all. We may have been a nation of Christians. Um, but at what point were we Christian when we, when, when Anglicans were killing um, Puritans or, or Quakers because that happened when we were colonizing? Yeah. Um, were we Christians when we uh, slaughtered the Native Americans and took their property and lied to them? Was that Christian? Were we were we Christians when we uh, abducted thousands of people from Africa and enslaved them, uh, human beings, and treated them as dogs and, uh, and slaves and is uh, less than human? Was that Christian? I mean. At what point were we behaving? Because again, if you, I define Christian as being Christ-like, and I don't see us being very Christ-like when I read the when I read the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, as great documents as those may be, um, if I scan those documents for any inkling of the language or the message of Jesus, I don't see it. It's they're not quoting Jesus there. Jesus is not prominent there. So we're not. We were not formed on the ideals or or the. The ethics of Christ. So we're, we've never been a Christian nation. We may have been again a nation of people who were Christians, but that's about as far as it went. And even then, they weren't acting very much like Christ.
1: Right. Those are fighting words here in the Bible Belt. I know a lot of folks would disagree with us on that, but I think you're absolutely right. How far does this separation of faith and politics go? What do we? What do you think is the proper role of Jesus followers in the political arena? Should we vote? Should we support candidates? Should we run for office?
0: Well, boy, now you're trying to get me in trouble. Um, <clears throat> well, here, here's the thing, Jason. I mean, when I wrote the book, again, I, I wrote the book primarily just kind of reflecting my own transition out of entanglement with politics into more of an allegiance to Christ. And I and I, and I wrote it in a way that I wanted, I wanted Christians to think about these ideas. I wanted to consider some of the things that I had to consider and wrestle with as I was sort of processing this whole entanglement issue for myself. So I do not want this book, and I did not write this book, to be sort of a brand-new rule book for Christians. Like, okay, now Keith says you've got to do this. No, please don't hear me saying that. Um, what, I, what I would like you to do, though, what I, my hope would be if people read the book, is to, to think about the things that I'm bringing up in the book, consider the, the ideas that I, that I bring up in, in the book, and think for yourself. You know, ask yourself that question. Well, then, if this is true, if my loyalty is to Christ, should I pledge allegiance to the flag? Uh, if if I'm an ambassador of Christ and His kingdom, um, should I be participating in, in in politics? So, like, I can tell you myself personally. Uh, no, I don't. I no longer vote anymore. Uh, I no longer stand and um, pledge allegiance to the flag. I don't. I don't do those things anymore. But again, I don't, I'm not writing this book to create a rule for people to follow that they need to do this too. But I, I would hope at least we'd be willing to, to take a step back and question these things. If nothing else, take these questions to Jesus. You know what I mean? Simply, honestly, go with, with open hands to the Lord and say, Lord, I, my first allegiance is to you. I want to honor you, first of all. You're my king, you're my Lord. And in every sense of that word, I want you to have absolute rule and reign in my life. And are these things, are these things insulting to you? Are these things offensive to you? Are uh, by participating in these things, am I, um, am I compromising my loyalty to Christ? Uh, that's all I ask. And if, if we can honestly do that, then whatever whatever else you decide to do is between you and God. Um, but for me personally. I would say I reached a point in my life where I realized I couldn't do that. That um, I had to make a stand. And again, the early church did as well, and, and many of them to the point of death. And it's like if I can't even do it, like no, again, no one's going to kill me. I hope not. No one's going to kill me for not participating uh, in the government to the degree that the early Christians did. They suffered for it with their life. Um, I might only have to suffer a little bit of embarrassment and uh, a little, bit, you know, suffer a little bit of. Uh, of hate, you know, maybe a sideways glance or something. Um, but I should be willing for me personally, I think I should be willing to do that at least for Christ. Um, if I'm called to.
1: What do you say to those who might respond to that by saying, if all the Christians pull out of the political process, if we all stop voting, then evil wins. Satan gets his way. He'll get the candidates he wants. He'll get the political leaders he wants. How do you respond to that?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Cause I do get that all the time. Um, Well, because here's the thing. First, first thing I I usually respond to that is, I'm not suggesting that we as followers of Jesus should do nothing. So that's not what I'm saying. Don't hear me saying that. What I'm saying that that I'm suggesting we do nothing. Now, what I'm saying is we don't participate in the political process. But my point is that, um, and again, I demonstrate many, many reasons why this is so that trying to gain any sort of influence through politics will never work and it will not make a difference in our society. And it just will not. Um, So first of all, we have to recognize that. And so if we do recognize that, then then this is what I did. I had to take a step back and, and say, well, then what will make a difference in the world around me? I believe that Jesus has already given us all the power we need to change the world and to change our nation. And it's the gospel. Um, and we either believe that or we don't. But I I had to come to a place that I said, you know what, Jesus, I believe you. I believe that you avoided politics, you avoided political power, and you gave us the means by which we can, first of all, we ourselves, through the power of Christ and the gospel, can experience a transformation of ourselves so that we become more Christlike. And then, this is the plan. <laughs> this has been the plan for 2,000 years, that then we, as the followers and ambassadors of Christ, we go and... We share the gospel with people around us. We invite them to also follow Christ, to live like Him, love like Him, forgive like Him, serve like Him, and that is the only way we will make a difference in the world around us. Politics is about passing laws and having power over people. But I'm telling you, we know this is true. You could pass a law that said anything, but that doesn't mean anybody, and, and you can force them to do it at you know with the threat of death or torture or whatever, and that maybe they'll do it, but not with their heart, right? But if if the gospel transforms someone from the inside out into someone who looks and acts and, and behaves like Christ, then you don't you can pass a law, any law you want, it won't matter, right? Because in their heart, they've been changed and transformed. So I, again, I believe Jesus has already given us the only means by which we're going to ever change or transform the world around us. And that's the gospel. So my answer would be, um, yeah. Yeah. Let people play the political game all they want. Um, the gospel still has the power to flourish. And if we put the energy and the money and the time that we do into politics, I mean, gosh, if you look at how much money is given by evangelical Christians to the political process, millions and billions of dollars that we are throwing into an empty pit that could be invested in the kingdom of God, the orphanages, the the schools you know the the, the seminaries, the uh, the homeless shelters, uh, the you know just on and on and on the things that we could be doing to to transform our communities around us into beautiful uh, expressions of the kingdom of God. It boggles the mind. We've wasted so much energy, so much money, so much time on politics, and what we've got out of it is a big fat goose egg. Um, that's why I'm encouraging us to give up on that, abandon that follow Christ, seek first the kingdom of God, put all of our time and energy into the kingdom, into the gospel, and yes, into these beautiful things that he's called us to do to help people around us who are suffering, who are in need, who are in poverty, um, who are being oppressed, uh, reach out to refugees, reach out to homeless mothers, all these kind of things. This is how we're going to change things like abortion. This is how we're going to turn the tide on uh, teenage suicide and all these kind of things. That's the only way we're going to do it. Passing laws will never get us there.
1: One of the things that gives me a lot of hope for the future is it seems like there's an emerging generation of young people that see through the lies that the political parties have been telling for so long. They also see through a lot of the lies that religion's been telling us for a long time. But because of a variety of factors, uh, financial concerns, the nationalism in our culture, expectations of parents, uh, even capitalism that seems to build up, you know, just the idea that anyone in a uniform is a hero. A lot of the younger generation feels pushed towards military service. Mm-hmm. What do you say to a young person who comes to you and says, I'm thinking about joining the military?
0: Oh, wow, man. <clears throat> well, that, thank you, by the way, the way, the way you frame that question, Jason, that is exactly right. Cause um, I I don't think it's an accident that, uh the US military focuses the vast majority of their recruitment efforts on the poorest communities uh, in America because these are young people who have no other options. Um, and they promise them a college education and they promise them they're going to learn a trade. And that's how they recruit them. So, in some ways, you could even say that perhaps uh, they're benefiting from allowing there to be large pockets and communities uh, that are in poverty so that. Uh, there's an, always a nice pool of people to uh, to recruit from, but you're right. So I I, I actually have, in fact, Jason, you remember we, when he did that event with Joshua Lawson? Um, that was the one, the nonviolence one that we did, um, the nonviolent love of Christ. Um, you were there, and after that event, there was a young man who came up to me afterwards, who told me exactly that. He said, "I'm gonna, I want to sign up for the military." And, uh, my heart just was sinking like, oh my gosh, what can I do? <laughs> How am I going to talk to this guy, uh, and change his mind about this? And, but I figured out I wasn't going to do it standing there. So I just listened to him tell a story and, and he explained to me why he felt he needed to join the military. And I gave him a copy of my book and I put my phone number, and my email in there. And I said, you know, please read the book and then come talk to me. And, um, and I just found out like about a week ago, uh, I was in touch with his sister and his sister told me, I, I was asking about him like, Hey, what did he decide to do? And she said, he's going to go to college instead. And he's not going to go to the, to the military. And I was like, Oh, thank you, Jesus. Um, wow. I, I think, um, the things I would say to a young person, there's just, there's so much to say. I don't even think there's a, there's a lot that you can say to a young person. I think, uh, I, again, I would, I'd give them things to read. I'd I'd send them some information. I might even connect them to some friends of mine who, who were in the military, who experienced what it was really like. Because again, I think there's manipulation going on where you're told a certain story going into the military as a young person. And then once you're there, and especially once you're deployed uh, and you experience what it's like, um, overseas, if you're in Afghanistan or Iraq or somewhere like that, and you're, you're in combat, um, you very quickly realize that what you're doing is not what you think you're doing. You're not really defending, uh, America. You're, um, well, quite, quite honestly, you're defending American corporations that have, uh, investments in those countries that need to be protected because they're stealing resources from those countries. Um, and anyway, it's just a, it's, it's just a raw deal, man. Uh, I think uh, that my heart breaks for that. And so that's also why I have compassion. Cause I, I, I quite often will talk to people, some of them who are older people who have served in the military. Some of them who are young people who are still in the military. Um, quite often though, most of the time uh, when I'm talking to those people, they will confirm that most of the things that I've been saying are true. They, they've learned the hard way that, yeah, this is not what I thought it was. Uh, once in a while, I'm, I'll meet somebody who's in the military who still still thinks it's the greatest thing in the world and still believes in it. But I understand it's sort of um, – it's a, a tough place to be in. And, and again, I'm certainly not writing my book to condemn anyone who who is a Christian and who is involved in the military. That's not my goal. Um, my goal will be to get someone to just ask some really hard questions. Um, what does it mean to be a soldier – uh, in the military, you know, you are you basically are signing up for the potential that you are going to you are going to kill another believer, you are going to kill another Christian, a brother and sister in Christ. You know, uh, how did the Lord speak to Paul when he was persecuting Christians? You know, uh, what mm-hmm. was that all about? And even if you don't, let's say you are not killing Christians, but you are killing people who don't have a chance to hear the gospel. Um, again, those are those are hard questions that I think as followers of Christ we would have to ask ourselves.
1: It is a really hard. Uh, subject to even discuss in the modern political culture. Uh, It seems like folks think you're disloyal or questioning the things that have made the country great, even to ask the question, should a Christian serve in the military or should we run for office? Those kind of questions. Uh, My my concern is always, I don't want a young person to end up in a situation where they face a court-martial for following Jesus instead of following orders, yep. which seems like a very real possibility yeah, uh, in today's uh, military climate.
0: Yeah. Well, and and I have, I have met those people. Um, we did a thing called passive spike club back in Southern California several years ago. And one of our guests was a guy, he was from Long Beach. He was a, he was a young man, a Christian man. He was uh, actually assigned to a nuclear submarine it was in the Navy and um, he was bored and uh, the chaplain suggested that he read the Bible, so he started reading the Gospels. And when he got through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he felt extremely convicted of what am I doing? I'm I'm on board a nuclear submarine with the capability of, of destroying half the planet. Um, I, I don't I, I don't think I should be doing this. So, so yeah, he ended up going through the conscientious objector uh, process, where he basically refused to do his duty, and he was brought up on court martial, and he was. Uh, you know threatened with being being put in jail for the rest of his life uh you know luckily he did win his case and they they gave him the um the discharge but that's a very real possibility you know um to be in a place where you do have to choose uh and then yeah then then you put yourself in that kind of jeopardy uh, and it's not not a good place to be
1: no not at all keith i know we're running out of time for this episode uh but i also know that you've got a United We Stand Tour coming up this summer, and I wanted to ask you to please tell our listeners a little bit about that. Uh, why are you going out on this tour, and how can our listeners get involved?
0: Yeah, thanks. So, um, <clears throat> well, I, I just, uh, again, as I said, since I wrote the book, I've seen, unfortunately, the Christian church become even more entangled, and I've, I've seen and experienced, um, you know, people leaving their churches over issues of politics, people not speaking to family members over issues of politics. Um, you know, whole families leaving churches over issues of politics. And so I, 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 what I see is that enemy, look, this is a tool and a over the enemy. The enemy wants to divide us. The enemy wants to separate us and he's using politics to do it. And I really feel a burden that, first of all, I think this is a huge problem in the church today. Anyone who doesn't think that this is one of the biggest problems in the American church today just isn't paying attention. Uh, and I also, what concerns me is I don't see a lot of people in uh, the church addressing it. I don't see anybody standing up and saying, hey, this is wrong. We've got to stop this. We've got to find a way to find common ground again. So this is part of why I felt convicted to like at least try to do something. So I, I put together this event. As you said, it's called United We Stand. It's a, We're going to do two one-hour sessions with Christians in churches around the country. This is our goal anyway, and I'm hoping we're going to get a good response from this, um, where I would be able to come in, um, identify some of the ways that we have become entangled with politics, help people to see that, and then show us some steps towards really bringing healing to the body of Christ and finding common ground, finding our unity again in Christ, and getting back to what we're called to do as a church, which is, again, not to be distracted over politics, but to be focused on Christ and his kingdom and living out the ethics of the gospel.
1: Well, I love Jesus Untangled so much, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, what's the best way for listeners to get a copy of your book?
0: Yeah, they can. Well, all my books are uh, through choir are on Amazon, so uh, just go and look it up on Amazon. Um, you can also go to, I believe, JesusUntangled.com, is there's a book page. and um, Or you can just follow my blog at KeithGiles.com. That's just my name, K-E-I-T-H-G-I-L-E-S.com. Uh, and there should be some links there as well.
1: Keith, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Thank you for your work, your books, your podcasts, videos, blogs, the whole thing. I believe that you're one of the most effective voices for speaking uh, to our kingdom, uh, to the culture right now. And I am so grateful for you and your work. And listeners, I want to mention Keith's Patreon page to you. You'll find a lot of great content there. And you'll be investing in his important work. So maybe uh, one step in the right direction, and I know Keith would never ask for this, but maybe one step in the right direction would be the next time we're tempted to give to a political campaign is to find somebody like Keith who's speaking the kingdom culture to our culture and invest in their work. And his Patreon is patreon.com slash Keith Giles. Thank you so much, Keith.
0: Thank you, Jason. God bless
1: listening to the Messy Spirituality Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and visit us online at messyspirituality.org. You can help spread the word about the podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes and sharing links to each episode on your social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode.